Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. There's a powerful argument for the historicity of the Gospels that has been uh, really uh, neglected and underdeveloped uh, in recent years. It's the way that the Gospels and other uh, New Testament documents, uh, Acts, the letters of St. Paul, how they actually fit together like pieces of a puzzle. My guest, Lydia McGrew, uh, is taking a close look at what might be called undesigned coincidences that show up in the uh, Gospels and how they actually form uh, a case, a strong case, for uh, biblical accuracy, uh, the reliability of the witnesses. Lydia McGrew is a widely published analytic philosopher who specializes in classical and formal epistemology, uh, probability theory, and philosophy of religion. She's the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. Lydia, good to make your acquaintance. Great to be on the show, Al. Let's start with the, the, the phrase, undesigned coincidences. What, what do you mean? What I mean by an undesigned coincidence is what I call an incidental interlocking that points to truth. It's a way that two accounts fit together, and the best explanation of their fitting together is that both authors had separate access to the truth. And so one of them will give you a part of the truth that he knew from his witnesses mm-hmm. or from remembering, and the other will give you another part, and then they fit together to form a complete and satisfying picture. Can you, can you be an example? Yeah, it's really best seen by examples. Um, one really good one that I like to talk about starts in Matthew 14. Mm-hmm. And in Matthew 14, we find Herod uh, speaking to his servants and being very superstitious about the rumors he's hearing about Jesus. And he says, this must be John the Baptist risen again from the dead. And Herod felt guilty because he had beheaded John the Baptist. But the question arises there, how in the world did did Matthew know what Herod was saying to his servants. And we might think this is just a fictional detail that Matthew put in to make the story more interesting. Uh But if we go over to Luke 8, we find that uh, Luke, in a totally different context, lists some women who were followers of Jesus. And one of the women he lists is Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. And this is in a totally different context, and yet it shows us how the followers of Jesus could have had intimate acquaintance with what was going on in Herod's household and what Herod was musing to his servants. So that's just one example of many in the New Testament. Yeah, that, that is a wonderful example. I mean, here, so, so in fact, we have uh, uh, Joanna, whose um, mm-hmm. husband is uh, within Herod's household. He has access to the conversations going on in the household, and uh, so could very, uh, very plausibly be considered a source for this conversation that shows up actually in Matthew. That's right. That's exactly right. I love that. That's very good. So the second passage then explains the first. Matthew uh, could have known about Herod's comment to his servants because the wife of one of those servants was a follower of Jesus. It's great. Yes, um, and many of them take that form of a question and an explanation. Sometimes they take a form that both of them are um, describing the same fact, only uh, from different perspectives. So there can be different forms that these take, but some of the easiest ones to explain 
do take that question-answer format. Mm-hmm. You also uh, point out another of these undesigned coincidences. In, J- in John chapter 6, for instance, Jesus asks Philip where to buy bread. This is just prior to the, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Why Philip? Yep. <laughs> I mean, John doesn't give us any explanation. It's just one of those, it's there, it's a detail, and it's not self-explanatory. So why Philip? Well, the the answer appears to be, now, of course, Jesus is teasing him, because he doesn't really want them to buy bread. He's going to miraculously produce right. bread. And, it, and John says this. He says he said this to test them, for he himself knew what he would do. But still, why Philip? But we find that, um, according to Luke, this took place near to um, Bethsaida, which mm-hmm. was a little town on the uh, north eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then when you go to a totally different passage in John, not even the same context at all, the original calling of the God, of, of the um, some of the disciples, you find that Philip was actually from the area of Bethsaida. So <laughs> Jesus is turning to Philip and he's saying, "Hey, um, hey, where can we where can we get food for all these people? <laughs> who, who are the local bakers here?" here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, and, and, and again, the, the point here is that if the Gospels were invented or fabricated, there'd be no particular reason for John to report that Jesus asked Philip where to buy the bread, uh, because there'd be no particular reason for listing Philip as a native of Bethsaida. Yeah. He leaves that out. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that something? So if you were fabricating it, you'd give both sides of it. Yes, you that's right. kind of leave something unexplained and leave your, your readers or your hearers to kind of go rummaging around in another gospel and find an obscure detail in another gospel that would explain your gospel. That's not how a forger or somebody fabricating a story would operate. That's right. They would control the, the circumstances of disclosure uh, a lot more carefully. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, very good. Um, you also has another example here uh, from John chapter 21, where Jesus famously asks Peter, do you love me three times? And that uh, you know, mirrors Peter's three denials. But you point out that there's a, a minor detail that's easy to overlook, and that is that the first time Jesus asked the question, his words are, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What's significant about that? Well, he appears to be saying, do you love me more than these other guys love me? It's not, do you love me more than this other, you love this other stuff, but do you love me more than these guys love me? Mm -hmm. And it's very strange, because Jesus is always telling them not to compete with each other. And so here Jesus seems to be encouraging competition by asking Peter if he loves him more than the other ones do. Um, But we find an explanation for that, again, not in John, but in Matthew and Mark, because back the night of of Jesus' betrayal, Monday, Thursday, Jesus prophesied that they would all forsake him and flee. And Peter said, even if they all do, I will not. Now, John does, you know, tell about Jesus uh, and John, and Peter's discussion and how uh, Peter said he would never forsake Jesus, but John does not tell that Peter compared himself to the other disciples like that and boasted that he was better than they were, and he would stick to Jesus even if they didn't. That's only found in the synoptics. So Jesus is alluding to that, and he's saying to to Peter, do you really love me more than they do? And Peter is forced humbly to just say, I I love you, Lord, but his pride has been humbled because he did deny Jesus, uh, contrary to what he had boasted. Hmm. You know, I... 
this is uh, I mean, this is fascinating, and I and, and it's also a little surprising to me that um, this approach has not been uh, very far developed. I mean, you, you're doing it here, and I, I know that in uh, Richard uh, Bachman's book on the the witnesses uh, that uh, he does a little bit of this too. But I, is this a an older approach that's coming back into uh, we're realizing its, its value now, or is this entirely new? It is not entirely new. It's so old that it's new, but just as you say, <laughs> it was originated by William Paley, who is better known uh, yeah. nowadays for his design argument. Right. He was an 18th century clergyman, and uh, he actually coined the term undesigned coincidences mm-hmm. back in the, in the 1700s, and then in the 1800s, that is the 19th century, a guy named J.J. Blunt wrote a book called Undesigned Scriptural Coincidences, where he did a lot of these in the Gospels. Uh, William Paley wrote a book called The Horai Polini, from which I drew most of my examples on Acts hmm. and uh, St. Paul's Epistles. Yeah. So then it kind of got dropped by scholars, and then my husband and I are trying to bring it back. Yeah. Yeah, this this is I mean this is fascinating. I and mean, it really does open uh some new uh possibilities for not only substantiating the historical accuracy of the gospels but also for creating a stronger uh a, a more textured sense of community too. I mean the the idea that um Joanna's husband to think of Joanna's husband is being there in Herod's household, right, and then passing this along, and exactly. and then and it's picked up by uh, another one of the uh, the the, go- the uh, gospel writers. Uh, I don't know; it's, it's ex- rather exciting uh, to me. Now, how does this Definitely. fit in? It gives us a sense of the vividness yeah. of what was going on at the time. Absolutely, yeah. Now, how does it fit in with you know mainstream critical scholarship today? Uh, I'm very much. Uh, going against the stream. I'm, I'm swimming upstream. Okay. Um, bar- partly because this argument has been dropped, but also because I take far more seriously the traditional theory that these were written either by eyewitnesses or by the immediate associates of eyewitnesses, right. no more than mm-hmm. like one removed from actual eyewitnesses, not how does John redact an earlier tradition. One of my uh, endorsers referred to me as the anti-redaction critic, and I, I'm very actually very proud of that. And I'm like, <laughs> yes, I am the anti-redaction critic. So it, my findings are also in tension with the idea that a later gospel like John is less reliable than an earlier gospel like Mark, which is often just taken as a given in New Testament scholarship. So I'm really uh, taking this very robust idea that the differences in the gospels are not the result of uh, redaction and still less the result of fictional redaction, but are actually the result of the kind of normal variance that we find in witness testimony. Yeah. I should let uh, everyone know, too, that, I mean, the the people who are endorsing uh, your approach here are uh, some of the, the clearest and most respected thinkers within uh, evangelical uh, Protestant circles, and uh, I don't doubt that a number of Catholic scholars would also uh, be enthusiastic about this approach. Um, now, let me let me ask um, where does is this the kind of approach that we will that we can expect 
will expand. In other words, have you exhausted the references? Or can we expect that as... No, I don't think so. Yeah, okay. In fact, um, someone, people send me suggestions all the time for new ones, and then I sift through them, and sometimes I say, oh, I'm not really taken by that one. That one doesn't grab me. Or, yeah, that's a really good one. And I just came up with a new one the other day. I was actually reading Richard Balcom's book, and he doesn't suggest it, but I was sort of inspired mm-hmm. by it concerning the women at the cross uh, that I can maybe discuss if we have time. Yeah. But, um, so, yes, we can expect it to expand. Okay, hold it there. Uh, Lydia, we'll come back on the other side of the break and continue the conversation uh, with that example uh, of the women at the cross. My guest, Lydia McGrew, is the author of Hidden, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidence in the Gospels and Acts. Really, a a very exciting uh, and insightful look at the biblical documents and reasserting their historicity. And good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. My guest... uh, Analytic philosopher, writer, scholar Lydia McGrew is the author of Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels uh, and the Acts. And what what's fascinating about her approach is that she's uh, showing that apparent, sometimes apparent discrepancies actually point to independent and reliable contact with the actual events of the uh, the Jesus story, the you know the gospel narratives, and uh, so it looks as though we have an additional uh, bit of evidence here as to the uh, not only the plausibility but the accuracy of the New Testament gospels. Let's talk. You were mentioning uh, before the break, Lydia, that we've got uh, this example of the women at the cross that uh, Richard Balcom brings up. Go ahead and develop that. Yeah. So. Malcolm um, just has some references to the women who were at the tomb and were also at the cross, and uh, to what the angels said to them. And then I was inspired by this to think of it as an undesigned coincidence, which he does not explicitly do. Uh, We find that uh, in that very same passage in Luke 8 that I mentioned earlier, where he talks about the women who were with Jesus in Galilee, he says that they, they followed Jesus and they ministered to him out of their out of their means. So they were actually giving money to Jesus. And there in Luke 8, he lists several of them. He mentions Mary Magdalene there, Mm -hmm. actually. He mentioned, I believe that's the first mention of Mary Magdalene. He mentions Joanna, as we said. He mentions someone named Susanna. Um, And then he says, and, and many others. So that's that list. And then you go to the women at the cross discussed in Matthew and Mark. And we find that uh, Matthew and Mark are both saying there were these women who had followed him out of Galilee and were at the cross. And they've never previously mentioned that there were women, you know, in Galilee with mm-hmm. him. They don't have a parallel passage to Luke, uh, Luke 8's list. And their list is partially overlapping, but partially uh, independent. They mm-hmm. say Mary Magdalene, but then they mention someone named Salome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark does. And they mention uh, someone named Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Mm-hmm. So it's like only a partially overlapping list. And then when you go to the account of the um, the account of the words 
to the women at the tomb from the angel that Luke gives. The angel says to them, do you remember when you were in Galilee how he said that he has to die (laughs) and rise again? And it says that they remembered his words. And Luke specifically says in, in chapter 24 that the women who were at the tomb included, among others, Mary Magdalene and Joanna. Luke brings Joanna up again, hmm. uh, and Mary, the mother of James, and then other women. So Luke's list in bo- all, both of these places are only partially overlapping with um, Mark's and Matthew's, but it becomes clear from all these passages fit together that these women really were with Jesus in Galilee, and they even remembered what he had said to them there. And so they, they mutually confirm each other by confirming these facts, but none of them is copied from each other, because if Luke was copying from uh, Matthew and Mark and trying to just insert these names earlier in his Gospel, he would have copied the same names. He wouldn't have given slightly different names. So I thought that was very exciting, and I just came up with that about two days ago, uh, inspired while I was reading Dr. Balcom. Yeah, that's great. Now, we've been talking about the um, synoptic Gospels, uh, how they can explain John, how John explains the synoptics, how the synoptics explain one another. You also go to Acts and uh, the letters of St. Paul. Why is Acts important? Acts is tremendously important because it's a kind of a bridge between the Gospels and the letters of St. Paul and the rest of the New Testament. And it's also a bridge between the relatively small geographical location in in the Gospels and what we might call the larger Roman world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It also gives us the earliest account of the early Church and of preaching, the earliest preaching of the Apostles just uh, 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. So very early, what were they attesting? So uh, Acts is extremely important to our understanding of the kind of risks they were taking and what they were testifying early on. So we definitely uh, would like it if we could confirm the reliability of Acts, and it's exciting to find that we can in many different ways. Well, give me, uh, again, why don't you go ahead and give me an example? Sure. Here's one that I kind of like. You need to, it helps if you read uh, the uh, New American Standard Version mm-hmm. of the passage in Acts 18, okay. uh, to see it. But it's about Paul's funding in the city of Corinth. We find in Acts 18 that uh, Paul is in the city of Corinth, and it says that he uh, made tents during the week, and then on Sabbath he was in the synagogue testifying to Jesus and trying to convert his fellow Jews. On the Sabbath, of course, he would have been forbidden to work. And then it says that when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Macedonia, of course, is north of Greece, north of Corinth, Corinth Paul became, says the uh, NASB, completely devoted to the Word, hmm. preaching mm-hmm. that Jesus was the Christ. Now, what is this completely devoted to the Word? St. Paul was always completely <laughs> devoted to the Word. It's a very, very cryptic <laughs> phrase. That's a good there point, no yeah. explanation for it in the book of Acts. But if we go over to 2 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9, Paul is getting a little defensive about money, as he has a tendency to do. And he's saying to the Corinthians, when I was with you, I didn't take any money from you. Mm-hmm. I took money from other churches to, to be able to be a missionary to you. I didn't ask you for money. And he said, and when I was with you and I was in need, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And he doesn't even name them or anything, but here we find an explanation for that phrase, completely devoted to the Word, that they brought him money. And so he was able to stop 
for a while his day job, his his tent making mm-hmm. work, and preach all the time because Timothy and Silas brought him a contribution from the churches of Macedonia. So it's this wonderful little indirect confirmation of act that explains what probably uh, Luke himself observed that when the men came from Macedonia, Paul was preaching even more often. Wow, wow! You know, it's these—it's this attention to detail in which these. You, there's remarkable discoveries that can be found, and uh, I I think um, I think probably a lot. Of, I know in my case, uh, after you know, my adult life, I've spent, spent reading the uh, the scriptures, that sometimes you pass over the significance of the details. So this you've, this phrase, completely devoted to the word, which showed up in the New American Standard Version, um, I'd never thought of that. That that, in a sense, it, there's kind of a superficial understanding of it, where you would say, well, of course Paul was completely devoted to the preaching of the Word. Why is this being even, this kind of a puff, this is just puffing him here. There's nothing significant about this. But the way you explain it, actually, it indicates that his work schedule has changed. <laughs> he's not. He doesn't. Ha- he's not now preoccupied with having to be a, t- a tent maker uh, during the the week. He can now uh, do full time preaching, uh, and I think that's. Uh, I that's I think that's important to to take that to pay that kind of attention to detail. That's tremendous. Um, and now, also, if they're getting it right on these little details, you know, sometimes yes. we're tempted to take a kind of a, a, a backing-off position and say, well, you know, they got the, the main gist yeah. of the story right, however we define that. But maybe they didn't really know what they were talking about concerning the details. So it's very exciting to find that it's precisely in the details that they're actually being confirmed in this way, because that really shows somebody was really close to the facts here. And I have numerous details like that um, concerning the author of Acts, whoever he was, that he was a companion of the Apostle Paul, yeah. which is a very important thing for the reliability of his work. Yeah. And he was also the author of the Gospel of Luke, so it's important for the reliability of Luke as well. Yeah, 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 this certainly, uh, Luke-Acts definitely uh, bridges uh, the the uh, the first uh, into the second generation. Um, now, we, we taking a look at... Um, uh, this one particular uh, uh, undesigned coincidence. Uh, give us another example that interfaces uh, St. Paul and uh, the Book of Acts. Sure. So in um, an epistle to Timothy, which, which are often questioned, by the right. way, as to their Pauline authorship by yeah. more liberal scholars, but right. St. Paul says to, to Timothy, remember how you learned about this, uh, about the scriptures, and how you were taught the scriptures from your earliest youth by your mother, Lois, and by your grandmother, Eunice, from the time you were a child. Now, who is missing from this portrait? Dad. (laughs) That's right. Dad is missing. This is not a a matriarchal society. Uh, Whether we think of it as a Jewish or a Gentile society, the education of a boy would not normally just fall to his mother and his grandmother. And and Paul has no explanation of this. He obviously is writing to Timothy, expects Timothy. Timothy knows why he was educated by his mother and his grandmother. Paul doesn't ex- explain it. Right, right. When you go over to the, the book of Acts, and uh, Paul first, you know, takes up with Timothy, 
Acts expressly says that uh, he wanted this young man to travel with him, and he was highly spoken of among the Christians, and his mother was a Jewess who believed, his mother is not named there, by the way, but his father was a Greek. And it's clear that by Greek he means a Gentile, not a Jew, not a proselyte or anything, because uh, Luke uses this to explain why he had not yet been circumcised. I guess Dad had drawn the line at that. Mm-hmm. So uh, Paul decided to circumcise Timothy to avoid giving offense to the Jews right. of the region, even though he was already an adult. But Luke is clearly not basing this on anything in Timothy. Timothy probably hadn't even been... The epistle of Timothy had probably not even been written yet, because he doesn't name the mother, he doesn't even mention Grandma, Okay, this is just something that the author of Acts knew when he was accompanying Paul uh, and knew from his friendship with Paul that Timothy's father was a Greek and that his mother was a Jewess who believed. And this dovetails perfectly with what the Apostle Paul himself writes to Timothy in his epistle. Yeah. See, this, this kind of thing, too, plays into this whole question of authorship. I mean, who the heck is going to... If you're... If you're, if this is a later composition, uh, in Paul's name, by those who have no, uh, you know, serious connection with his circle of influence, they're going to make the mistake, aren't they, of making sure they get Dad's name in there? Uh, they're not going to be as careful uh, as an actual, uh, an authentic communication would be. That's, I, you, this is very, very exciting. Uh, what, are you working on the follow-up to this? Some other work in New Testament studies, but not a book right at this time. Okay. But I do write a lot of blog posts. All right. I'll be, I'll be uh, watching uh, the work, Lydia, and we'll talk again, uh, Lord willing. I'd love to follow up on this. That would be wonderful. Go to LydiaMcGrew.com to get a portal to all my blogs. Okay, we'll do it.